Hello listeners, my name is Greg Gustin and welcome back to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. So we're here with Matt Hunter, who is our Director of Scholastic Training at Athletic Lab. Hey Matt. Hey Greg, thanks for having me. Yep, uh, so I'm going to jump right into it. Um, I wanted to kind of give everybody a little bit of information or just have you kind of run down where you've been in the past in terms of uh, coaching or, or internships or any other experiences relevant and kind of how that shaped you as a coach. Sure, so I was lucky enough back in 2011 when I was a freshman at Ohio Wesleyan where I did my, um, my four years for college to have a professor who gave the strong advice to all the freshmen that you got to start looking for internships as quick as possible that if you wait till you're a sophomore or a junior you're already getting behind and so from there I went and I looked at the gym that I went to in high school which was Mike Boyle strength and conditioning I'm from up near Boston and so that was the gym that I went to to train with other athletes and I actually didn't realize how big of a deal that place was it was just the gym I went to and so I got in touch with Marco Sanchez who was my strength coach from there and he helped me get that internship which once again didn't realize how much of a huge favor that was for yeah. a freshman in college who didn't have necessarily the experience of the typical intern going into that Boyles internship and so that 12 weeks was huge for me I probably learned more in that period of time than any 12-week period before or since because I was starting off completely green yeah and then from there I was lucky enough to then get an internship with Eric Cressy and I did some other ones with some of the um, coaches at my at my college some volunteering um, at track and field camps, coaching some high, high school programs, and then working in some smaller facilities back up home before eventually coming down here to Athletic Lab. And so most of my experience has been in private facilities, so a mixture of athletes and non-athletes, and there's this business component to it that's not always the quite the same as it is in college. Kind of the equivalent in like a college setting would be recruiting to the way that we have to then um, have like sales as part of what we do here, but seeing some different business models and the way they ran and the pros and cons of each one definitely was helpful going into this position that I'm currently in an athletic lab. Yeah, and deciding how best to operate with this one. Yeah, it's actually really relevant coming kind of your background is is some other um, businesses or facilities that do kind of what we do and so uh, and been doing it for a while and on a little bit bigger scale. Some of the, they've really grown and the fact that you've been able to get in there and learn from those people is is great. Um, what is, uh, you know, based on those experiences, what is a couple of the biggest takeaways, uh, whether it's training specific, um, you know, methodology or just like some, some general themes that you've gathered from some of those bigger places? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways to handle um, a large volume of clients or athletes in a private setting. So obviously when you're, let's say, a single person, like personal training, you just try to build up your roster like that, but eventually you just run out of hours. So if you really want to get a large number of athletes coming through, you got to figure out some ways to do it. So group settings, like the way that they did at Boyles and similar to the way that we're doing our scholastic groups down here with our high school aged athletes, are one of the most natural ways to do that when you're actually getting a group of athletes together who are going through the same or roughly the same workout on roughly the same training plan. But also then there's some other ways to do it that can be just as good depending on the population you're working with. So at Cresties they use a semi-private model, or at least I should say that was what they were using primarily when I was there. And that would work in that you would have, let's say, 
20 people on the floor at the same time all doing their own individual program and a handful of coaches, let's say five or so, jumping around among those 20 and helping out where needed. Yeah. And the same idea that you know, some, some people, once they really know what they're doing, they may not need someone watching every single rep of every right. single set, yeah. but they might need help when they're saying, that, hey, something's not feeling right or um, the weights aren't quite feeling like they should do today or like how's my sprinting look. And so it's a lot uh, better in that setting, in that kind of context there, to be able to have a single coaching hour service a lot more people. Yeah. So there's different ways to skin a cat on that, and there's not necessarily a clear cut, this is the best way, which is kind of the fun of it, kind of deciding, okay, what's gonna be the strategy we get to undertake here? Yeah, and I mean, we, this will kind of segue us into it, but we've kind of um, always had, and especially now have, the model where we're, we're kind of doing small group training for our scholastic, which is our, our kind of high school age athletes. And uh, that'll kind of lead us in. I want to talk a little bit about our scholastic program. And, you know, if you can give us just kind of a general rundown of our scholastic and kind of what we offer and the different elements of that. Yeah, so the way that the groups work for that high school age athlete, and then in the summers it opens up to the college age athletes as well, is it follows those traditional sports seasons. So obviously you'll have with club sports some exceptions to when exactly these line up, but still most high school athletes are going to pretty much follow about the same kind of North Carolina state schedule within that state or whatever state you're in, they're going to follow that state schedule. So there's only going to be listed on the public schools uh, websites for athletics and how that's going to follow. But basically on any given 13 weeks, so one fourth of the year, whether it's what we're just finishing up, which was the spring season, that would start on the uh, first day of tryouts and follow up into the playoffs. And so once that uh, playoffs hits, and we transition, let's say, from the spring into the summer season, some athletes who are finishing up their summer training, or sorry, I should say, who are finishing up their spring season in playoffs will have the playoffs. And when their playoffs are done, they join the groups. Other ones who didn't make playoffs are going to join up for the summer right away. So you can basically think of the year broken down into four pieces of training, one for each season. And then athletes will train um, depending on what their availability is with their sport, or if it's, let's say, an off-season, they can come in more often. So we offer that one, two, or three days a week. But the whole group is going to basically, because they're on roughly the same schedule, we know about when tryouts are going to be, or pretty much exactly when tryouts are going to be. We know about when everyone's seasons are going to end. The timing for training can be the same among those groups. So when we're actually doing a lot more volume at the beginning of an off-season, it's going to be pretty much the same for everybody. When we're actually tapering, going into the tryouts, they're going to feel fresh when they have to compete. It's going to be about the same for everybody there. Yeah. And so that kind of a group sense there, one thing that really is nice that it offers that I really like is a team kind of atmosphere. Yeah, for sure. So when you've got, let's say, um, a bunch of people working out on separate programs, the advantage that brings is for sure the individualization. You can get really different with every single athlete if you have to. You can handle special circumstances very easily. But one thing that you get with this group, which I'm a big fan of, is that kind of atmosphere where you get kids getting after it with each other, pushing each other, or kind of chase after another kid, whether it's mm -hmm. with the sprinting, the conditioning, or even just seeing that, oh man, that you can actually lift that much weight and like realizing that something's possible and yeah. quite literally raising the bar when it comes to what's gonna happen in the training hall. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up is the, kind of the team atmosphere, even though the athletes may be different sports, you know, they're, they're maybe completely different athletes in general, but they're, they're on a similar program, on a similar timeline, as like what you call a season. And uh, so they do kind of get that, that team atmosphere and they, they get to push each other in that regard. 
Uh, One of the probably best examples I think we have of this in here at the moment has been the kind of long-running summer university prep program that you run with the soccer athletes there. Right. And seeing those groups operate in that kind of fashion was one of the reasons that I really wanted to expand that to uh, the other age groups as well. Because there's a lot of benefit that comes from that and having the groups together like that. Because I mean, there's always going to be some adjustment you make in individualization for athletes, whether it's slightly different exercise selections or slightly different volumes um, on lifting or whatever it's going to be there. But for the most part, things are pretty close athlete to athlete. Yeah. And when you're in the same kind of age group or especially if you're in the same um, timeline with seasons or with sport, the more homogenous the group gets, the more uh, it is beneficial to have that kind of atmosphere, in my right. opinion. Yeah. Um, and you know, your answers kind of segue us pretty well, not even on purpose, into what kind of the next point I want to make is, though, and that's um, what we kind of created for, I guess you could say a funneling system, but actually more for a development system, which is the scholastic prep. So actually, uh, I think if we're talking about scholastic, we would be, um, we would have to talk about the preparatory uh, program, which is the younger kids. So if you can kind of chat about um, how these kids start into the, the scholastic prep program and where you kind of see that um, pushing toward and filtering into our scholastic uh, high school age program. Yeah, so the scholastic prep program is our middle school age groups. And then when you get into high school and up, that's when you would go into the scholastic. So the more of the kind of traditional high performance setting and the way training is set up, when training is the focus, pushing performance, really getting better for that competitive arena of sports is what we save for that high school and college age. With the middle school kids, what we're really trying to do is get them introduced to training well as early as possible. And so the way that uh, you can usually think of this is that when you're learning, let's say, how to lift, whether you're learning how to do a squat when you're 20 or when you're 12, that first session that you're doing is still learning. So if you have never learned how to do a good squat or never learned how to do your push-ups correctly or never done pull-ups, you still gotta learn it the first time. So the earlier that we can get those good habits in place, the better it's gonna set them up when they get to a slightly more mature age and performance is the push. And so it was actually uh, Mike who created the format for our Scholastic Prep program and it's really, really uh, clever in its Simplicity, and that's where a lot of the elegance is with yeah. that. So there's quite a lot of play for the coach who's managing that session to adjust based on the kids that are in there. And a lot of what they do is disguised as games. And so for them, speed development or change of direction development or decision making within those kind of contexts, they don't even necessarily realize that that's the focus. With like the high school athletes, it's gonna be very clear, like all right, today we are working on like your linear speed, or today we're gonna be working on your change of direction or reacting off a partner. It's a very defined goal. Those same training goals will happen with the younger kids, but they're masked as games. So to them, they're just playing. They're coming and they're enjoying being in the gym, they're having fun as they do that. And the same thing when they get into the, what we would call the strength development section there, we're never pushing the weights. If an athlete asks like, hey, can I use a, like a heavier dumbbell for my goblet squats? If they're looking good, we'll let them do that. But we're never pushing them to use heavier weights because mm -hmm. like I said, the main thing we're trying to do there is get these really solid habits in. So then when they get a little bit older, they can hit the ground running and start developing as quick as possible. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, that was kind of hit on one of the points I was gonna make was you know how to keep them engaged even with some some structure to the program and you hit on that with kind of the the games or the the way you set up the movements and the 
the, the drills and the speed development and things like that. Yeah. When, um, when, we, when we had uh, at Dan Baker come in here and he actually showed us a lot of these games um, as a learning. James. Sorry, James. Yeah, I, yeah. I was always sad. I don't know. <laughs> Baker and Baker. Different Baker. Another, Thank you, another James very Baker. smart Baker. <laughs> and uh, when he came in to show us those games there, we were doing them as a staff and having a blast with them. Yeah, it and was. He, and he was saying that a lot of times it's like even the big kids, like when he was working <laughs> with high school athletes or, or older, um, that's one of the groups that tend to enjoy those the most. So there's some use to it and there's a lot of ways to adapt it. And some of the things he pointed out in some conversations that we had, um, which I wanted to make sure we could integrate as much as possible, is basically thinking of any given stage in your long-term athletic development as preparing for everything you would need for the next one. So some things like when they get to that high school age, or especially in college, most strength and conditioning programs, they're having to read off of a sheet or some kind of training card. And so they're going to have to get used to, okay, this is where the sets are written, this is reps, this is exercise, this is where I write in my weights. And so having a version of that in the scholastic prep program will make it easier when the scholastic prep athlete ages up into the high school age and is ready to go on that. So they don't actually have a sheet, let's say, in the scholastic prep program, but they've got a uh, whiteboard there where what they're doing for their strength is written in a very similar format to what they'll see later on. Or even understanding, okay, this is um, the structure of a session. We're going to generally have a warm-up first. We're going to generally have a cool-down last. Things like that that make the transition very smooth from one age group up to the next. Sure. Yeah, and, and just kind of, I mean, that's a general overview, and can we maybe just go through, like, bullet point, what the what we hit in the program, or what, in the class, specifically, like, what are the bullet points in the class, right. like, the things we develop? So, for scholastic prep, if we get from a training side, after the warm-up, there'll be a speed development section, and like I said, that's almost always disguised as a game, but there'll be a certain focus to that, whether it's uh, tracking a partner, true sprinting in a straight line change of direction, jumping within the running. There'll be a focus that that game kind of forces them towards, learning how to run out of different stances, let's say. So there's a lot of variety in that, but you can think of that as their speed and change of, speed, agility, change of direction type training. From there, they get into, or uh, sorry, I skipped a piece. Before that, I kind of finish off the warm up, transitioning the speed, we have a coordination section. Mm-hmm. So that might be the kind of thing where they're playing a game where they're balancing on one foot and having to throw balls throughout the group there. Um, that might be the kind of thing where they're doing various jumping exercises, or they might be doing games where they feel like they're an animal doing crawling, but that's learning different locomotive skills. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the speed after that, and following the speed is when we get into what we would consider the strength development. And the way that'll work is we'll have movement categories. So for example, a squat, a push, a pull, a hinge, and a brace. Really, really basic, and those five there will happen every single session, but what those five are will be different. So mm-hmm. let's say for the squat, one day might be your traditional goblet squat. Another day might be a split squat. Another One day for push might be a push-up. Another day might be a dumbbell press. Um, one day for pulling might be rope climbs. One day, another day for pulling might be actually trying to do a dumbbell rows or something like that. There's a lot of variety in there. And even more with that, to keep it engaging and interesting for them and introduce them to different concepts, sometimes it's for reps. They're going to be doing 10 reps of something. Sometimes it's for time. Sometimes they're going to be doing pauses. And more than that, having a direct training goal. Because once again, for this age group, the focus of that strength development isn't to directly push how much weight they can move and develop strength. It's through a coordination standpoint to get really, really good at these movements and understand all of the variables of training that they may see later on. And it always finishes with a cool down. And that same kind of session structure is pretty similar when they get to the high school age group with Scholastic. After the warm up, they've got their speed development. 
they got their strength development, and the only thing that we add there in a slightly longer session is a conditioning portion before the cool down. Right. But once again, that kind of session flow, the way they've understood that through their middle school years, is going to be a really easy transition when they get to high school yeah, for to, sure. to being able to integrate into an older age group. And I like um, a couple of things you said. You know, a lot of the variability in the movements, whether it's the skill practice or some of the games, or even the variation in the the strength exercises, like. They're, they're actually getting a lot of things that um, exposure to a lot of movement practice that the, the high school age kids may actually not get with their more structured program because they're at a point in the older years where they need um, a little bit more structure to, to be able to adapt and actually get actually get strong and try to get fast and more powerful. Um, so they're actually getting a lot of movement variability and things that they may not actually see later on um, as much when they get to more structured training. So I love that they get that. And as another point, um, we, we mentioned that we don't push the weights, we just teach the movements, we, we look for good movement patterns and uh, learning. And, but what's crazy with that is, uh, with consistency, the kids get strong. Like, yeah. and, and a lot of them, they, they like to lift. There's a couple you know, young girls in the program I saw last night doing a 50 pound split squat, goblet split squat, and it looked good. Like it's, it's like you get strong if you just move well and are consistent. You know? Right, and that kind of a movement there, if you say look at a young kid doing that, you might think like, is that too much weight? But it's the kind of thing where they, those girls you're mentioning have been in that program for a long time, right. for You've years, doing, yeah. even when it was a format different than what we currently use. Right. And it's exactly that. Let's say they started with a 10-pound dumbbell. These are kids who they're athletes. Like they're com they're competitive. Right. They're gonna eventually say this is too easy. Right. Okay. If it still looks good, let's go to a twelve and a half pound dumbbell. And that just inching up will eventually get to something. And then all of a sudden, like holy man, wow, that kid's actually pretty right. darn strong. Right. It's amazing to see what happens with just consistency. For sure. Which is also something else that we adjusted the high school training format to. Um, which kind of mirrored something we do with our performance fitness with our adult training groups, which is you're committing to a certain number of times per week. So the adult groups, you've got like a two-day, three-day-a-week, or an unlimited plan. With the high school athletes, we've got a one-day-a-week, two-day-a-week, or three-day-a-week. And so let's say rather than committing to a certain number of sessions, like I'm going to do 24 workouts over three months, so roughly two a week. And some weeks they're coming in two. Some weeks they're coming in none. Some weeks they're coming in four times. The consistency of, okay, I'm going to commit to just, even if it's two days a week, I can always be there two days a week for an entire 13-week season and you do that for a few seasons in a row, things just continue to get slowly a little bit better, slowly sure. a little bit better. And it's pretty it's pretty fun to watch that progression go, especially in a high school age when there's so much physical development coming yes. just by uh, the age that they're at, when they're growing so quickly, they're getting stronger and faster, and then a combination of their natural development mixed with good progressive training, it's a lot of fun to watch that happen there. It's a really exciting time in an athlete's uh, developmental stage. Yeah, that's really great. And, and again, segues are perfect. I want to go right into kind of the <clears throat> more of the format of that scholastic program. Um, kind of talking about the, like, what's the day-to-day -day format? Is it, you know, can you even say that you have, you know, like a conjugate style training or like high-low even or like block method? Like, could you even put those things on that? Or is it, is it a little more, uh, like, how would you describe how you set it up? So there's a, a good uh, quote from Cressy recently when he got an email from a parent basically saying that, that their parent, their kid who was 11 years old was using conjugate periodization. <laughs> and the way he put it in, I think, one of the comments was, it's the equivalent of doing calculus before you've learned algebra. Sure. The periodization is really, really simple. Right. Because let's say even if you are a kid 
who's trained since sixth grade in the scholastic prep program. So you've got three years of good base of movement and good exposure to training, building up some work capacity going as you get into high school. It's probably your first time training seriously and having the focus not just be on learning, but actually performance. And even more common is for athletes to come in and have to start their learning process while they're in high school. So if we're talking about doing uh, algebra before you, you do calculus, this is doing long division before you do algebra. This is even a step behind that. Sure. So the way it's put is still in a progressive overloading manner, but it's pretty much accumulation intensification. It's really, really simple mm -hmm. uh, principles of volume and intensity. So let's say uh, we'll take this one step at a time. The easiest one to conceptualize that is with the strength training. During the first phase, we divide every season into three phases. Let's talk about this in an off-season context when there's more of a true push for training development with the athlete. If they're in off-season, that first phase is going to be the most volume. So that's when you're seeing those long sets of like eight to 10, almost like a little bit of a hypertrophy type stimulus there. But more than anything, we're just accumulating that work. And then from there, those are gonna drop down to sets of five. And then from there, we're gonna finish off and we're gonna do something with accommodating resistance that's a little bit more power output um, focused, like adding bands onto that movement for let's say a squat or a bench press, something like that. So there is some relatively sophisticated stuff going on there. We're putting in some uh, bands on that. We're using push bands. So push bands is a velocity-based training method. So let's say on those core movements, we can actually track the speed of the bar going on at all times. So there's a lot of stuff going on in here that's enhancing the training experience, but at its core, we build up volume and then we decrease the volume and increase the intensity. And then the next season comes around, we do that again. And then the next season comes around, we do that again. It's pretty simple from that standpoint, but when you're at this age and this point in your development, you don't necessarily need to, and it may not even be beneficial to get to a more sophisticated uh, setup of training. It's one of the temptations if uh, for anyone who's training when they're getting better on a simple program, well maybe I could get even, even better quicker if I went on a more complicated program. Right. But a lot of times when you're continuing to see improvement, we don't need to get any more sophisticated than that. Yeah. You can save that for later on in the development. Especially with a lot of these kids that are going into season, you know, they, they develop, they go through a little bit of complexity through, through the simple basics, and then they go in season, and maybe they're training still, maybe but it's less. It might be one time a week, or maybe right. they don't train at all you know, based on their schedule, and then they come back to train, and going back into that simple kind of setup is just what they need again. Like mm -hmm. They need to you know, accumulate that volume again. So. Yeah. We have some slightly more sophisticated progression in there in the way that the movements progress. So let's say in uh, the way that we would take a simple exercise like a box jump. We're not gonna do a box jump for 13 weeks. It would be not a good training stimulus and we'd be missing out on a lot of upper opportunities. So a box jump really, it has a jumping exercise. More than anything, we use it to teach them, okay, this is what you're gonna land in. This is the position you're gonna land on top of the box because later we're gonna do a broad jump. When you're jumping out, and at that point, it's not a nice soft landing at the top of the box. It's a pretty hard landing. You've just pushed yourself out forward as far and as fast as you can and you have to stop your momentum. So at that point, if they've got some good landing habits, they can do that exercise well. And we'll take that to a three hop, which is a, usually somewhat of an advanced plyo among, let's say, like uh, high school track and field athletes. But if you put in the progression, you can get up to that. Same thing with the way we've done like med ball throws. Some of the med ball throwing variations they're doing during the end of that look like they're pretty complicated. But the way the progression is set up, the teaching and the learning of that is very incremental. And they're able to get to these uh, very high coordination movements for, let's say, their power development. 
even with speed, there's some kind of tricks and things within the speed training that are not always apparent to the eyes. Let's say for the way that we do a linear speed progression. Early on in the program, we have a lot of resisted runs. And one of the reasons we're doing that is for a teaching standpoint. If you're in a harness and you're resisted run, you can't take a big step out in front of you and pull. You can't do these kind of bad overstriding habits because you're just not gonna go anywhere. You have to pull your partners holding the harness. And so that helps us really teach, this is what pushing is. This is what it feels like to push when you're starting your sprint. This is what it feels like to get your arms moving in the right direction. This is what it feels like to get that. And we always keep that in, even late in the program, but to a much less ex smaller extent. So let's say during week one of the program, I think half of the runs they do on the linear development day are resisted run. By the end of that, I wanna say there's only two or three of the runs they do during that day are with the harness. So there's some things in there that seem like they're just a simple, okay, we're starting resistant and getting faster, which that's part of it, but there's also some teaching progressions in there. Sure. Same thing for the way we do the change of direction development there. It's going from simple to complex to chaotic. We're having these kind of things that you would have heard if you talk, if you listen to other, other podcasts Greg's done in the past about um, these general concepts of how we integrate training in the athletic lab as a whole. We keep those in here, but only as complicated as needed. There's no need to get uh, overreach, um, not in the standpoint of training, but overreach in the standpoint of complexity just for the sake of being complex and for flashy. Sure, for sure. Um, I want to kind of get your thoughts on, well, especially kind of anecdotally, how you handle when somebody jumps in, say, phase two or phase three. Like you have these progressions set up to get, um, you know, the more advanced exercises toward the end of the season. But what happens when they miss that progression? How do you handle that? Right. That was one of the things that was the we took the most time to discuss what was the best way to do it because even in an ideal world, we've got kids going late in the playoffs. That's what we ideally want, which means if they're going late in the playoffs, they're gonna be starting their off season later than kids who didn't make playoffs. So there's really no way to avoid that. You're always gonna get that. And so basically the way we structured it is that the uh, progressions and regressions that we are all using when we're with these groups are identical. So that doesn't mean the modifications are the same. So the difference between a modification and a progression, regression being a modification is if someone can't do a movement because of, let's say, an injury or a certain limitation, such as, um, let's say, they've got a knee injury and they can't do a squat. That would limit them from doing that movement or any movement quite like it will have to do a modification instead. For a progression regression, that might be the kind of thing where a kid comes in and they can't do a back squat well because they never learned to squat we're gonna start them with a goblet squat. Or if they can't goblet squat, we're gonna start them with a box squat, that's body weight. We're gonna have the same progressions and regressions among the staff, so we know exactly how we are going through these teaching progressions. And so the easiest way to think of this, say you come in during phase three, and they're doing that third one, that uh, three hop, for the box jump to broad jump to three hop progression. Probably going to start them with either a box jump or a broad jump. Let's just do one of those, see how it looks. Okay, your box jump looks good. We could probably do a broad jump. Broad jump's looking good, but they haven't done those recently. Okay, I'm probably gonna stay on that until we're feeling comfortable to bring them to the group. So in that session, they're still gonna be, when the group gets over to do their three hops, they're still doing a very similar movement. It's a bilateral jump, uh, but they're gonna be doing a version of that that they can do well. And then as they assimilate to the group, they get to the same point there. That's great, yeah, the progression sheet, the progression regression kind of inventory to make sure everybody's on the same page is just like kind of the glue that holds all that together. Um, and then, you know, obviously coaches knowing like what athlete is at what point in their training, you know, 
this athlete has been through all three phases. This athlete is just starting. So obviously communication's huge on that. Um, and, you know, you talked about injured athletes a little bit, but maybe you can talk a little more about um, a couple that we've had recently where, you know, they've continued training through some serious injuries um, and, and still been able to basically make strides in their training given uh, huge limitations. Right. So the it's somewhat of a natural instinct, particularly among athletes and parents, when an athlete gets hurt to think, okay, well, they're hurt, they have an injury, they can't play their sport, let's say they just had surgery. Um, like we had a girl who, in an unfortunate field hockey accident, stepped in a ditch in a field and broke her ankle, no fault of her own. Um, but at that point, she obviously couldn't play the rest of her field hockey season and she couldn't play preseason lacrosse to get ready for her main sport. This is a high school senior who is um, now rising into her freshman year in college as a, uh, could be a division one athlete. So she's a very, very good athlete. And so it's very kind of natural to have the instinct of, well, I can't even play my sport. How, how the hell am I going to train? And it's the exact opposite of what we need. So if you're not able to play your sport, then any training stimulus that would have come from practices, from games, are gone. So there's no training load on that athlete whatsoever if we also take out the gym. And then in addition to that uh, injured area of the body being taken back by the injury and having to be rehabbed, the rest of the body is detraining and deconditioning to any demands of sport during that whole process. So the best thing we can possibly do is train every way that we can with that limitation in mind. So for example, the easiest uh, way to conceptualize that is to think, okay, we've got a lower body injury. Well, most upper body movements then we're gonna be able to train pretty much normally. We're still gonna be able to do pull-ups. We're still gonna be able to do bench press. We're still going to be able to do exercises that are going to help this athlete maintain strength or even develop some weaknesses. So for example, with that athlete, bench press or push-ups, any kind of pressing movement was never a strength of hers. And I want to say at this point she's just off of our third place for the record board. I think she's fourth place on our high school leaders there. And so it's the kind of thing where if you've got an extended period of time where you don't have the fatigue from your sport, okay, we can really focus on some weaknesses here and kind of change some things. Additionally, there's a temptation with the lower body um, to worry about, let's say, symmetry. So let's say, okay, we can't really train the left leg because there's an injury there. We shouldn't touch the right leg because we don't want the right leg to get massively stronger and have a huge imbalance. The, the reality of it, it doesn't really work like that. So two ways to think of this. One is that injured leg, let's say the left leg in this standpoint, especially when you can be in touch with the physical therapist, the person doing the rehab, like we're lucky enough that we have Raleigh Orthopedic in the same building as us and this athlete was doing her rehab there so we could be in communication constantly, that left leg is getting everything it can get via the physical therapy. So whether that's talking about uh, just simply the PT exercises that that ankle could handle after the injury, there's no more we could do with it anyway. It's getting effectively a max stimulus for what it can handle. But additionally, uh, to get some movement and some actual uh, general flow or blood flow through that area, whether it's something just simple like doing those basic knee extensions and leg curls or even doing some more sophisticated things with um, occlusion training and whatnot there. If the physical therapy is being done well, then that area is probably still getting trained as much as it can. So the worst thing we could do for the non-injured leg is once again completely ignore it because then that limb is going to be detrained to the demands of training. So let's say the, the rehab process is over and the left leg, the injured side, is ready to go and ready to train. Well, if we've detrained the right side, then we've got an imbalance and no preparation to possibly handle sport. It's one of the potential reasons why 
a injury to one side of the body is a strong predictor to an, a similar injury on the other. So particularly with ACL, that's one of the predictors of a future ACL tear is a ACL on the opposite side of the body. So you tear your left, your right is at potentially at a future increase for injury just because of that. And this is, in my opinion, one of the reasons why is because you might be tempted to say, okay, we gotta just lay off all lower body. So what we did with this athlete and what we I would say ideally would like to do is then we train that uninjured side as much as we can. So we're still doing single leg squats, single leg deadlifts, basic hopping exercises once we were at the point that it was safe to, let's say, have to catch yourself slightly with the injured leg. We'll save anything that outweighs the risk reward until it makes sense. But even early on, like a single leg squat where you're sitting down on a bench, so that injured leg is gonna have no chance of having to have something sketchy happen to it there. Or if you even wanna play it more conservative, if you've got leg extension and leg curl machines, you can do that. Just whatever we can do to keep a training stimulus and keep some preparation to as much of the body as possible, we will do. Places where you gotta get a little more creative or something like, say, like conditioning. Okay, we can't do tempo running, we can't necessarily do biking early on. Well, what are we gonna do? So we did everything from uh, general strength circuits that were mostly core exercises, or like kneeling med ball throws, kneeling push-ups, movements like that to get some stimulus there. We did uh, seated battle rope circuits, just anything we could do to continue to get some sort of fitness stimulus, even if it wasn't sophisticated in the way that we would ideally like to talk about energy system development. Just think of it literally as anything we can do to get some general conditioning. That's going to be better than completely detraining de that energy system development. And so from there, you can make not necessarily an easy transition back to sport. It's never easy after a major injury, but you can make a much smoother transition back to sport than if once the injured side or injured area of the body is ready to go, the rest of the body doesn't have to catch up now. Everything's already ready to go, and the second that the PT is clear is clearing the athlete and the doctors are happy, then okay, let's start integrating back into practices and games, and hopefully everything's smooth sailing from there. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Um, really kind of thorough look at that. I mean, that we could probably talk a whole podcast episode on just kind of how we approach return to play and just the, the yeah. situations we've seen. But um, it sounds like we've got a good kind of a good handle on that. Right. The um, interesting thing, actually, that we should mention in the context of this being more about the group training, the scholastic program, is that that athlete did that progression in the groups, right. not in private training. Right. And so the way that we did that had to be uh, considering that, okay, we're not just managing one athlete, we're managing large groups potentially. So with that way we did that, let's say when the group was following their normal session format, this athlete was also following that format. So when the group was doing their speed development, while that ankle was injured and she could not do speed development, we could still work on core strength. We, so we gave her core circuits to do, that was a list of exercises, and there was a clock managing her on and off. So it somewhat auto-regulated um, itself and it ran itself, so that way the coach didn't have too many things to juggle, but also it was a uh, set up so that way between sprint reps, if she had a question or the coach could look over and see things, there was still opportunity to coach. When we then get into the strength development, we're doing the program as closely as we can. So like I mentioned there, upper body-wise, really didn't have to modify anything. Maybe instead of an overhead press being from a standing position, it was from a seated position or later a kneeling position instead. Small modifications for the upper body exercises there. So that was easy, we can keep going with that. Lower body, once again, let's say if the group is gonna be doing a squat, we're gonna get as close as we can with a single leg squat for that athlete. 
And then conditioning, if we can keep that athlete on the same work-rest ratio as the rest of the group, so once again, still be assimilated within that, still get as close to what we can, but then modifying what the movements are rather than running. Like we said, it might be uh, general strength. Rather than bikes, it might be battle ropes. Whatever it was that day, trying to keep that athlete as close to the group as possible. One, so the group can run effectively for everybody involved. The coach doesn't have to manage a bunch of different sessions. But two, then that athlete doesn't feel like they are completely alienated from a solid training process. It's one of like the mental sides of being injured. Um, let's say in like a team sports setting, when you go from being in the weight room, getting after it with all the rest of your teammates, being right there in the huddle to relegate it over to the sidelines or the corner of the weight room doing your kind of uh, mm -hmm. completely different, super regress injury program. Right. If we can keep them integrated within the training group, that helps a lot for the mental state of training. And so every Absolutely. chance we get, it's good for the athletes themselves and it's good for the rest of the group to have them along with that. And so that was one of the challenges we had, but it worked thankfully exceptionally well yeah it's uh, good to see her back on the field now and yeah and, uh, doing well so two games left in playoffs right now for her lacrosse team so that's if they great. win this uh, next one here tonight they'll be in the state championships Man, on Saturday that's great yeah really really good story there um kind of want to wrap things up and um just kind of say that you know I, I really enjoyed to uh see how the program some of the recent changes that we've that we've made to the program especially since you've uh, kind of taken over as Scholastic director have, have kind of come to fruition. It's been a really solid program, and, and a lot of these kids have just been getting a lot better every single day. Um, but with some of the successes, you know, we also want to be humble and, and kind of think about, uh, you know, what limitations do you think you see with the program, or where do you think we can take it in the future? Like, what are some, you know, just a couple of things that maybe have been on your mind? Yeah, so one of the things that's definitely a consideration is entering the summer, which we haven't run this format in the summer yet. This is right now our third season running this. We did the winter and this past spring season. The summer almost always has the most enrollment um, for all of our athletic programs because athletes, whether it's college athletes or home, high school athletes have more time to train, middle school age athletes have time when they're on summer vacation. There's almost always a pretty large increase there. And so with the space that we have currently, we're, we're, we're lucky it's a big gym, but we're gonna have a bigger one later this summer. It's one of the things, okay, let's, let's start anticipating and getting on top of if these groups really start taking off and we get a lot of athletes coming in, figuring out, okay, what's the best way we can manage this with the space that we have? Because there's even some times um, of day throughout the gym where the gym is crowded. We're not the only group training in this space. So it's a big gym, but there's a lot else going on. So let's say like a Monday at five o'clock, how many, how many potential sessions could be going on? There could be a scholastic group, there could be a scholastic prep group, there could be a Swoley class, there could be a CrossFit class, there could be a CrossFit competition team. So there could be five, private training, yeah, five groups plus any private training. So let's say there is typically one or two private trainings. There might be as many as seven different groups and or sessions going on in the gym at the same time. And so there's only so much space to keep pushing a bigger group out to. And so it's one of the things we were thinking about is, okay, first on the coaching standpoint, if you got a huge group that one coach couldn't effectively manage, whether it's adding a intern along to help be a second pair of eyes or even schedule another coach on, we've got to figure out how to make sure that we can handle that and keep the coach-athlete ratio tight, but also using the space that we have. So let's say, example, we got four uh, racks, so if they're going to be squatting, could probably quite easily handle three athletes on a rack, assuming that they're all close enough in height that they could use similar level for the J hooks. But if we got a group of more than 12, we're gonna have to get a little bit creative on the best way to possibly use that space. 
And so there's some considerations like that for the remainder of our time in this facility that are probably the biggest one. Because the goal is being completely transparent from two standpoints to get as many athletes in here as possible. One, I mentioned this earlier, I really like the team atmosphere that you get with small, medium, or especially large groups. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something about that kind of football weight room type environment when you've got a ton of athletes getting after it that is just from a physical development standpoint, really, really positive. Mm-hmm. And two, the other reason is this is a private facility, so this is a business. It's, a business, it's yeah. good for business. Um, for recruiting is part of what you need in college. You need a lot of athletes to run your team, whether it's you call it sales or whatever you call it for here. The more people you've got coming in, the better it is for business. It's so better be, for them too. You know, more kids in training is more development on their side. So exactly. So we want love that. So with both in mind, we do want to push the number of athletes we have in this, but as much as possible, never compromise what we're actually giving to Absolutely. the athletes. There's a, um, a pride that we have definitely among the staff of not putting business ahead of training. Right. The training model dictates the business model, not the other way around. Is one sure. of the way Mike puts it in staff meetings when we talk For about sure. it. That's great. Yeah. Any, I mean, any last thoughts on kind of where you hope to take it? Just, uh, just quickly here. Yeah. I mean, there was a uh, thinking back to when I was a senior in high school. Uh, going to Mike Boyle's Strength and Conditioning Gym in Woodward, Massachusetts for the first time and doing kind of like a walkthrough there. It was, uh, it was a good time of day also, but the gym was packed. And that summer, then a year later, when I interned there, there were days where you're talking over 300 athletes coming wow. through on the same day. It's crazy. And man, it was the best training environment I may have ever been in as far as from an athlete standpoint. The, just the energy and the, the feel of that gym when it's firing on all cylinders was pretty unparalleled of anywhere else that I've been as a coach or an athlete. So, I mean, that's where we want to get to. We want yep. to get to that kind of experience when we're, we're bringing what they've got up north down here in North Carolina. Absolutely, yeah. That's obviously the goal is always just to keep growing and, and have that kind of atmosphere. It's fun for everybody, athletes, coaches, everybody around. So, um, yeah, I guess with that, we'll, we'll kind of leave it. And thanks, Matt, for chatting with us. You had a lot of great stuff there, a bunch of topics we probably could dive a lot deeper into. Yeah, maybe and, we'll know, do yeah, some other we'll, uh, follow-ups on some of these topics in more detail. Yep. Yeah, um, if anyone's uh, interested in anything in more detail, leave a, leave a note, a little comment, or whatever it may be. and. We'll definitely get on here and talk a little more about whatever else you want. All right. Thanks again. And be sure to tune in for more from the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory.